Open your Bibles with me, if you would, please, to uh, Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64, I want to read uh, one, one verse as I begin this morning. Continuing our series through the summer on sheer Christianity. Not uh, see-through Christianity, but pure, true Christianity. Isaiah 64, I want to read one verse. Verses, well, actually, it's two verses, seven and eight. Kind of a sad uh, commentary from the heart of Isaiah, but I think it's pertinent for us this morning. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. Lord, today, as we come before you and in your word, we ask that we would not be among those who do not call upon your name and who do not take hold of you, who do not rouse ourselves in this day in which we're living. But just the opposite, Lord, we ask that those things would be true of us. And so today as we gather, we pray for the Spirit of God to speak to us and to teach us, to disciple us, and encourage us that we might make name, the known the great name of Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen. The title this morning, my teaching, Taking Hold of God. Taking Hold of God. Matt had asked that we would take this summer and dig in a little bit more to the values and the uh, things that we hold dear as a church, looking at some truths of the Christian faith in their pure form, in their pure essence, I guess you would say. And today I want to re revisit a subject that we just actually finished not long ago a series on, and that is the subject of prayer. And look at prayer again. I want to just say as I uh, begin this morning that you today uh, are going to what I would feel is a school of prayer. And you're going to have to have on your thinking caps a little bit today as we look at some, uh, I think, some very incredibly beautiful and probably deep truths of regarding prayer. But I want to challenge you today to think. I want to challenge you today to be willing to go deeper in your thoughts, both about prayer itself, but especially about God and understanding, because I believe that that's what the Lord is desiring for his church in this day. I have five questions that I asked myself this week as I was preparing, and I'm going to try to answer them in the time I have. I'm not going to take a long time in a couple of them, but I want to ask, just put these five questions before us this morning. The first one is probably the most important one. What is the essence of prayer? What is prayer? What is the essence of prayer? And I would say that all of us have a very simple understanding and a simple answer. You know, it's to talk to God. Okay, that's good. But I want to go a little deeper than that this morning. What is the essence of prayer? The second question I ask myself is, why do we pray? Why do we pray? Thirdly, what happens when we pray? What happens? The fourth not so hard to answer, but I will try. Why don't we pray if we're not 
not assuming that we are all not, but some of us may not be too much. Why not? And then lastly, how do we pray? Of course, Jesus has already taught us that, but we'll look at that briefly again. What is the essence of prayer? Why do we pray? What happens when we pray? Why don't we pray? And how do we pray? We have been looking at our faith in its purest, I hope, forms and expressions. We've also been trying, which is equally important, to discern the present battle that is being waged against us as we live out our faith in the 21st century of America, live out this pure and very powerful, sheer Christian faith that we've been called to today. And we have been saying again and again and again that the liturgy of our culture is very powerful and it is constant and probably very subtle in most cases. We live as though we are in a constant state of exposure like to radiation, if we use that as an example. Something that we can't see, something that we can't feel, something that we're not aware of its effects, but it is continually poisoning us, bombarding us, if you would. That's what we are living under in this world in terms of the cultural liturgy that is being waged continually against us as believers in a fallen world today. It's hard to discern it, but it is so damaging to our spiritual lives, this liturgy. And it is so much, its purpose is to limit the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the church. We've been looking at the importance of understanding the priority of the gathered church. We began our series looking at the priority of the church gathered and how God has sovereignly placed each one of us in a spiritual family at this time, and that God's purpose is that each of us would find that place and, and, and enjoy that place, and the church would receive the benefit of our hearts and our lives and our ministries amongst one another. We looked at the call to have a generous, extravagant generosity. We've looked at the biblical precedent to view parenting in our families not just marrieds, but even single people, to view family life as, as one that we are to build generationally. That there's a generational calling and blessing uh, in God on family and on parenting and on life together in family. And then last week we looked at the foundational truth that God's word is the ultimate truth that we must build our lives upon. So we've been looking at some very basic truths, but looking at them maybe deeper than we're used to and through this lens now and hopefully asking God to give us a new liturgy, a new grace obedience, if you would, defining liturgy, a new grace obedience in the things that are most important and developing now habits, if you would, of life, liturgical behavior that is grace-oriented in obedience to the greater truths of God. And as is true with all of the previous that we've been looking at uh, truths and subjects, there is a cultural, cultural liturgy that has been devised by the enemy of our souls against us becoming fruitful and effective in our prayer lives. What liturgy has the enemy devised against the church as it relates to prayer? And I had an interesting time of thinking upon this as I 
thought about this. What, what is the cultural liturgy, if there is one, if we could use that language uh, against us regarding prayer? And I came up with some things that some of them are very obvious maybe, but most of them may not be. The first I thought of is that there is an emphasis in our culture on self-autonomy and rugged individualism. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We push on and we survive on our own determination and know-how. It's American know-how. Of course, there's much that is admirable about this mentality. But it is not always positive and helpful when it comes to our spiritual lives. Thinking that we are on our own, doing it on our own, doing it through determination and self-effort. That is not true. And it is not helpful. And self-autonomy is a mantra of Americanism. And it is counterproductive to dependency on God. Of course, the ease of life is a cultural battle that it comes against us, our incredible abundance of material wealth and possessions. And I've told the story many times of the Cambodian pastor that we had come into our lives many years ago in, in the vineyard when we were part of the vineyard. And I asked him one day, I said, so Paul, I said, what would you say is the difference between Cambodian Christians and American Christians? And he said quickly, you don't need God. He said, you have credit cards, you have medicines, you have doctors. He said, in Cambodia, we don't have any of that. When we don't have God, we starve. And when we're sick, we die without God. That is a battle against our souls that we know that we can always turn somewhere before we turn to God if we need to. The busyness, of course, and overexposure that we have to multiple mediums of input into our lives, technology, television, exhaustion from work, the busyness of American family life, all of these things work against growing in our heart's desire and God's desire for us to grow in prayer, a postmodern worldview and its denial of the spiritual realm and its power. And even the church is unbelieving in this area, unbelieving of the power of God, unbelieving of the spiritual realm and its dynamic and its reality. Spirituality is a, is a very um, uh, chic thought now to be spiritual but to define spirituality usually comes back to self-awareness and some sort of pop psychology or philosophy. And it has nothing to do with the truth of the spiritual world in which we live, especially the resurrected Christ and his victory at the cross. So this postmodern worldview is a cultural liturgy against developing a prayer life because we don't believe in the power of prayer too often. And of course, and this might be one of the most important ones, poor theology and an improper understanding of the true nature of God. Can I say that again? An improper understanding of the true nature of God. Shallow and immature thinking of what God is like and the lack of understanding of the Trinity and the role of each of the persons of the Trinity as we relate to God and as we come to God in prayer. So I ask myself, what is the essence of prayer? And I want to take a few moments, if you will bear with me, and I want to read the thoughts of some men 
who I would say to you changed the world 500 years ago and changed the world in which you live today 500 years ago because of their courage and their faith and, listen, and their prayer life. Let's listen to the words of the reformers regarding prayer. What did they think of prayer and especially the essence of prayer? And I've, we're going to have them on the screen for you. You can follow along if you want. There's, some of them are very wordy, so you may have a hard time reading them. If you don't want to try to squint to read them, you can just listen. I want to quote some men. First, Martin Luther. Let me say to you as I begin, these are all taken from one book. Taking Hold of God is the title of the book, A Reformed and Puritan Perspective on Prayer, uh, a compilation of authors by a man, edited by a man named Joel Beek. And he, he is one who wrote uh, a lot of these, um, uh, on some of these men in this book. So I'm going to give him credit and this book credit. The first is Martin Luther. Luther said this. He said, prayer is the hardest work of all. A labor above all labors. Since he who prays must wage a mighty warfare against the doubt and murmuring excited by the faint-heartedness and unworthiness we feel within us. Now, the way they talk is different than how we talk. But think. Now, listen and think to what they're saying. Luther knew how spiritually demanding it was to pray. He confessed there is no greater work than praying. Indeed, for him, it is even more laborious than preaching. Prayer is a difficult matter and hard work. It is far more difficult, he said, than preaching the word or performing other official duties in the church. When we are preaching the word, we're more passive than active. God is speaking through us, and our teaching is his work. That is why it is also very rare to pray. He said this. He said, prayer is addressed very simply to the Father. Now listen, to the Father through the Son with the help of the Holy Spirit. If you get nothing else this morning, please get this. Because it will change how we pray. Thomas Boston, another maybe not as well-known reformer, he said adoption. His whole understanding of prayer had to do with adoption. Adoption, he said, is the foundation of prayer. For it is the key that opens heaven's doors to receive our prayers as God's beloved children. The spirit of adoption is the life of our prayers. For he indwells our hearts as the spirit of the Son and enlivens our hearts with childlike petitions. Prayer is the fruit of adoption, for it brings to full expression the desire of adopted children for the honor of their father's name. Their longing for the expansion of his kingdom among men and their holy resolve to submit to his will. Prayer draws out and deepens their dependence upon his grace for the needs of their bodies, the forgiveness of their sins, and the sanctification of their souls. Prayer teaches the adopted children of God that no children are so happy as God's children are. For they have the most honorable father, the most loving and compassionate father, the most helpful father, the richest father, the wisest father of all. My God, my father is bigger than, better than your father. My dad's stronger than your dad. The spirit of adoption. And he says, because prayer is a benefit of grace given through Christ, our prayers, listen, are to be Christ-centered. Now, I'm going to say this. I hope I don't step on your toes. Hear my heart in this. I hope it changes something. I told Kath on the way in, one of my pet peeves is when people pray, God, God, would you do this? God, would you do that? God, would you do this? Pray with more specificity than just to say generally, God. 
pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And I'll explain to you why that's important to think through and understand. Adoption comes from the Trinity, so prayer depends on the Trinity. For thus the whole Trinity is glorified by the praying of believers. The Father is the hearer of prayer. The Son is the advocate and intercessor, presenting their prayers to the Father and the Spirit as the author of their prayers. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.18, For through him, speaking of Christ, we both have one access but we have access by one spirit unto the Father. Prayer is not just a privilege of, of adoption, Boston said. It is a sign of the adoption. For it is the fruit of the spirit of adoption. The spirit of adoption is a spirit of prayer. John Calvin, one of the best known reformers, in the final in edition of his institute, Define prayer as a communion of men with God, by which, having entered into the holy sanctuary, they appeal to him, listen, in person, concerning his promises in order to experience that what they believed was not in vain. I love that. In order to experience that what they believed was not in vain. Elsewhere, he wrote that prayer is a communication between God and us, whereby we expound to him our desires, our joys, our sighs, in a word, all the thoughts of our hearts. And a fundamental aspect of his thought on prayer was that prayer was not primarily instituted for God, but rather for man. Prayer is a means given to man so that he might, by faith, reach those riches which are laid. Now, this is important. We might reach those riches which are laid up for us with the Heavenly Father. Prayer allows the believer to appeal to the providence, the predestination, the omnipotence, and the omniscience of God the Father. Prayer calls down the Father's tender mercy and care for his children because having prayed, we have a sense of peace that God knows all and that he has both the will and the power to take the best care of us. As I was reading these and going through these, I thought, the only way you can know these things is to spend a lot of time in prayer. See, this is more than just theology. It's experiential theology. It's, it's knowledge gained through experiencing God and then having the words to articulate what you've learned because your understanding of God is strong enough to be able to put words to those things. Are you with me? You're in a school of prayer. He said that prayer is a way in which believers seek and receive what God, I love this, what God has determined to do for them from eternity. Prayer does not change God or his decrees for three reasons. Because first of all, God is immutable. He's unchanging. Secondly, God's good pleasure already governs everything. And thirdly, God is in control of everything, including our prayers. If prayer could change God or his decrees, the human will would usurp from God at least part of his control of history, which would deny God's all-controlling grace and would destroy our faith. But rather, prayer is something we do with God's help on the basis of what God has done for us in his eternal election. 
You see, we're praying that which is already true in eternity of God's plan and will. When we pray by the Spirit, with the help of the Spirit. Maturity, growing in understanding, is what God wants for the church today in regards to a lot of things. But I think maybe for us, especially prayer. Ultimately, for Calvin, prayer is a heavenly act, a holy and precious communion with the triune God in his glorious throne room, grounded in an assured eschatological. In other words, what is to be, what God has already promised to be in the future, an eschatological hope. The great author John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, who experienced so much of what he went through in a prison and wrote his, many of his books, including Pilgrim's Progress, because of his experience in prison. Bunyan said this regarding prayer, that it is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ. In the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit. You hear the Trinity in all of their writings and thinking. For such things as God has promised or according to the word for the good of the church with submission in faith to the will of God. Gaining an understanding of God's heart and God's desires and God's purposes and God's will. Jonathan Edwards, one of my personal Hebrew, he, heroes, and this is the last of the reformers that I will read. He says this, while believers are praying, he gives them sweet views of his glorious grace, purity, sufficiency, and sovereignty, and enables them with great quietness to rest in him to leave themselves and their prayers with him, submitting to his, wills and his will and trusting in his grace and faithfulness. Key, key to Edward's theology of prayers was the nature of God. It is not, not enough to pray, he would argue. One must pray to the true God. Underline the word true in your minds. Herein, preached Edwards, the most high God is distinguished from false gods. The true God is the only one of his character, of this character. There is no other of whom it may be said that he hears prayer. To that end, Edwards devoted no small amount of energy to the study of God. For as he told his congregation in Northampton, prayer begins and ends with God. There is no other way that the heart can look to God, but only by faith, and by faith seeking the blessing of God, and by faith depending on God for the mercy sought. Edward said that God sees all over this world, every man, every woman, every child, every beast on earth, every bird in the air. Yesterday, Kath was sitting outside reading, having devotion, and a little finch fell at her feet and died. And she came in the house, and she was so grieved. And we both said it at the same time, but the Father sees every bird that falls. This is what Edwards is saying about the sovereignty, the omniscience of God. 
There is not so much as a fly or a worm or a gnat that is unknown to God. He knows every tree, every leaf, every spire of grass, every drop of rain or dew, every single dust mode in the whole world. God sees in darkness and underground, a thousand miles underground, is not hid from his view. God sees all that men do or say, sees their hearts and thoughts. God knows everything past, even things a thousand years ago. He also knows everything to come, even a thousand years to come. He knows all that men will be and all that they will do, say, or think. This is the God to whom we pray. This is the God in whom, this is the true God in whom we believe. And there are many false gods. And so it behooves us as believers to pray to the Father. Not some generic God out there, but to the Father through the Son in the wisdom and life and power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, and this is the last quote. He said, it is not in order that God may be informed by our wants or desires because he is omniscient and with respect to his knowledge, unchangeable. God never gains any knowledge by information. God, I want to remind you, God, in case you didn't see, in case you're not aware, in case you forgot, God doesn't gain knowledge by information. He knows what we want a thousand times more perfectly than we do ourselves before we ask him. Yet it is not to be thought that God is properly moved or made willing by our prayers. For it is no more possible that there should be any new inclination, inclination or will in God than new knowledge. He is not moved in his emotions by us. The theological term for that is impassibility. He does not feel as you feel. He does not, he's not moved with emotion as you are. Anything that defines God's emotion is metaphorical so that we can relate to somehow to this infinite God. But he himself is not moved by us. He's perfect. And if he were moved, he would be imperfect. He would change. He cannot change. He's perfect. The mercy of God is not moved or drawn by anything in the creature, but the spring of God's beneficence is within himself only. He is self-moved. And whatsoever mercy he bestows, the reason and the ground of it is not to be sought for in the creature, but in God's own pleasure. These are the words of the reformers as they thought about prayer. It's a little deeper than what we think of. Brothers and sisters, we have to go deeper in our thinking of God, understanding the true nature of God. And I really believe that we will find more enjoyment, more fulfillment, more peace, more comfort As we pray with as we pray with a greater and a fuller mature understanding of who this God is to whom we are praying. So that we're not pleading with him like we would plead with a human being. That's okay to plead with God. The psalmist did it. But in that understanding that the pleading is still according to the will of God's sovereignty. 
not to the will or wish of man. And so Jesus would, in the garden, prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me, if possible. And then he said what? But not my will, but your will be done. Our humanity is vulnerable. Our humanity is finite and fallible. And so we have emotion. But the emotion does not move God. What moves God's heart is faith. And it's faith in God's will and God's purposes. Trusting those. And so you don't have as many questions. Because our questions are answered in him. The mystery remains, but we're satisfied to live in mystery. Are you with me? I'm satisfied to live with mystery because I trust the character of God. And as we sang this morning, I trust the goodness of God. You have been good, good, good to me. For all my life, you have been faithful, and you will continue to be. Why do we pray? We pray simply in my mind, to take hold of God's heart. We pray that his name would be glorified on the earth through our lives. As Jonathan Edwards said, Jesus teaches us that our Father knows our needs before we ask, so it can't be to try to convince God to do something for us. We don't pray to convince him of anything. Prayer, as Calvin said, is to agree with God's eternal plan for us and for his sovereign will to be done in our lives upon the earth. You see, if we can really come to the point where we really in faith can say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, it's going gonna, it's gonna to free us of a lot of things. It really is. So many people are angry at God because God doesn't answer prayer the way they want. People walk away from God. Because they don't understand some of the deeper realities of God's providence and sovereignty. And they think that he is unkind or uncaring. And so when we can settle in our hearts that he is good, that he is loving, that he is unchanging, that he is always faithful, and that his eternal plan is being worked out, we can rest in prayer. Bringing them to God, yes, but resting after we have and waiting in faith. Maturity. There's so much mystery in this, but there's so much comfort and peace knowing that our lives have an eternal destiny that is being worked out in the plan of God on the earth. Isn't that amazing? We also pray to further the kingdom of God. We agree with God regarding the souls of men and of nations. We petition God for his will to be done for our families, for cities, and for whole nations. We did as men yesterday. We cry out to God for the nation of Afghanistan, for the will of God, for the church in Afghanistan, for the suffering men and women, and especially children in Afghanistan. That the will of God would be done in the lives of men and women according to his sovereign purposes in a terrible situation, not knowing in our own minds how it could be, but it is God's plan being worked out. 
We cry out to God to wage war against principalities and powers. We don't pray against them. We ask him to wage war against principalities and powers that are over cities and over nations because we don't just believe in a spirituality that is cool. We believe in a reality of a warfare in heavenly places and in a spiritual realm. We stand as men on the earth, understanding the times in which we live. And we take hold of the heart of God for these days in which we live. We take hold of God's heart for these days in which we live. Do we pray for our own needs? Yes. But we pray knowing that our, God knows our needs. And if he doesn't answer the way that we hope or want, it's because his plan is being worked in a way that we don't yet understand. Are we content to live that way? What happens when we pray? I think a couple of things. The first one is we align our hearts with God's heart. Now, I want to say this too for, to all of us, for all of us. It's, again, as I was reading these things and studying and thinking, I realized that this takes time. It takes time to mature into this kind of a prayer understanding in life. And it takes time in prayer to experience these things. I'll talk more about that in a minute, but it's a time issue. We align our hearts with God's heart when we pray, and we bend our will to God's will. The prayer of the Welsh revivals, the Welsh revivalists was, bend me, O God, bend me. They prayed that for days and days and days and days. Bend me. Bend my will to your will, O oh God. This is not a casual Christianity. This is a, it's in its purest form what it's all about. What happens when we pray? We fulfill our mandate to subdue the earth. This is our realm and responsibility that God has given us. God has given us responsibility for the earth. This is our realm. And when we pray and when we seek God and we call upon God to enable us to live our lives on the earth and to, to do what we've been called for the sake of the kingdom, we are fulfilling the mandate God gave us to subdue the earth in a godly, kind, compassionate, merciful way, in a wise way, stewarding the hearts and the souls of men and God's creation. And metaphorically speaking, we move God's hand. We don't convince him. He doesn't do it because we've pleaded enough. He hears us. But he delights in our faith and in our diligence. And angels are sent when we pray for the sake of the elect. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits, speaking of angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels are sent by God for the sake of the elect as the elect call upon God upon the earth. And we don't even see it or know it or aren't even aware of it. 
just as the prophet had to have his eyes open to see the army of God on the mountain surrounding them. The army of the Lord, an angelic army, as he called upon God, the Lord had to say to him, do not, do not fear. So God, it moves heaven when we pray. And by the way, when heaven responds, hell is terrified. When a man or a woman or a young man or a young woman or a child prays in faith, heaven responds and hell is terrified by the faith, the simple prayer of that child or that man or that woman. What can we do if we're not praying enough? We can't solve prayerlessness in our own strength, as I said a moment ago. God's grace is necessary in this area. But we have to take, now listen to this, we have to take our thoughts and emotions captive and grow in the grace of obedient prayer. Deal with your emotions, please. Deal with your fears. Deal with your anxieties before God, not on your own, before God. But take captive these runaway thoughts, these unbelieving thoughts, these God-denying thoughts. Take them captive. Paul speaks of this. Does he not in Corinthians? In order to take hold of what's true, don't let your emotions run your brain amok. And don't let your brain run your emotions amok. Take these things captive to the degree that we are humanly possible to do by the grace of God. And begin to go deeper in your thoughts about God. Read books. Like we went through a book together with a few men. None greater. Read books that speak of these attributes of God that might be a little bit deeper than you've ever thought of God, but help open up your eyes and understanding to the true nature of God so that when you pray, you know whom you're praying to. And you're, listen, please, you're not praying to an image of God. That's a false image. Are you with me? I'm trying to be really nice. Because everything I'm saying is true for me equally. Know that. But we have to go deeper in our thoughts. And we have to ask God to open our eyes to see as he sees. To love what he loves the way that he loves it. And listen, and to hate what he hates the way he hates it. Because there are things God hates. And unless we hate them, then we're in danger of being deceived. And lastly, how should we pray? We come to God in faith. Psalm 4.3 says, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call. To him. The Lord has set the apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. How should we pray? We pray to the Father through and in the name of the Son and by the Holy Spirit.
And as Paul writes in Ephesians, we should pray always with all types of prayers. Petitions, intercession, warring, all different kinds of prayer. In the Spirit, in tongues. By the Spirit, if you don't know how to pray, pray in tongues. I would encourage you, pray out loud as often as you can. I personally like to pray out loud. Because I want to hear what I'm thinking. Because I hold myself accountable when I pray out loud. Develop your vocabulary. Now, not to say that we can't pray simple prayers. I'm not talking about having an eloquence, that somehow eloquent prayers are more heard by God. I'm not saying that. We're not heard by our many words. Didn't Jesus say that? Believing that somehow the more we, words we say, the more God... No, that's not what I'm saying. But develop your vocabulary in a biblical sense that is consistent with the nature of the character of God. And if you catch yourself praying unbelievingly, hold yourself accountable in your own heart, you'll know. I hope this is helpful. I hope it's caused us to hunger to go deeper. I actually had wanted to ask two or three people on the spot to talk quickly about how their prayer life, what it's like, but I don't feel like we have time. I think it will go a little too long to do that. But there are some people in our church that have, I think, very mature prayer lives. And you probably in your mind might know who they might be, who they are. Um, I would encourage you to talk to them, maybe take them out to coffee or have them over for dinner or call them and just say, hey, tell me about your prayer life. What happens when you pray? How do you pray? What do you think when you pray? How has God helped you to become more effective in prayer? And I'll say this as I close. If there's one area of our church that I really believe the area that we need to grow the most, we're growing in all areas, this is the area, is prayer. Not just that we show up for meetings. That's not what I'm saying. But that when we are together and we pray, or when we are praying at home, our prayer life has become much more vibrant and effective and fulfilling as we spend time before God. Would you stand with me, please? One of the Puritans wrote, and I'll let his prayer be my prayer as we close. He said, O Lord, in prayer I launch far out into the eternal world, and on that broad ocean my my soul triumphs over all the shores of mortality. Time, with its gay amusements and cruel disappointments, never appears so inconsiderate as then. In prayer, I see myself as nothing. I find my heart going after thee with intensity and long with vehement thirst to live to thee. Blessed be the strong gales of the Spirit that speed me on my way to the new Jerusalem. In prayer, all things here below vanish and nothing seems important but holiness of heart and the salvation of others. In prayer, all my worldly cares and fears and anxieties disappear and are as of little significance as a puff of wind. 
In prayer, my soul inwardly exults with lively thoughts at what you are doing for your church. And I long that thou would give thyself a great name from sinners returning to Zion. In prayer, I am lifted above the frowns and flatteries of life and taste heavenly joys, entering into the eternal world. I can give myself to thee with all my heart to be thine forever. In prayer, I can place all my concerns in thy hands to be entirely at thy disposal, having no will or interest of my own. In prayer, I can intercede for my friends, for ministers, for sinners, for the church, for thy kingdom to come with greatest freedom, ardent hopes as a son to his father, as a lover to the beloved. Help me to be all prayer and never to cease praying. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father. We love you. Do these things in us, we ask in Jesus' name. The power of the Spirit of God. Strengthen us and give us grace to grow in this amazing privilege as your people upon the earth. And may we grow, Lord, in a cultural, a new, excuse me, a new biblical liturgy, obedient grace in our prayer lives. For your name's sake, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys.